0: Well, good morning. It's nice to be back. uh, I was looking through my notes, and the last time I stood up here was uh, in August of uh, 2019. That's nearly three years ago, so it's quite a a gap, but it's nice uh, to be back again. Um, I'd like to just say thank you to those of you who I know have been praying for Jean, uh, and you've asked me regularly uh, how she is. Um, She's she's okay. Uh, I went to see her on Thursday. Uh, we couldn't wake her up, so I came away. Uh, and it's often like that. Um, but I went in with a couple of friends uh, who, from St Aldam's church in Weymouth, which is just down the road from the home, and um, we were going to give her communion, which we do about once a month. We just go in to her and j- just trying to revive or just um, rekindle something in her memory, in her mind I don't know how much she understood what we were doing uh, but she agreed to it and she took the bread and the wine uh, on the other times we've been uh, and I just I just hope that somehow she has a memory she's known the Lord for over 70 years um, and uh, something must have must still stick there um, I did actually ask her last time I saw her uh, I, I said do you ever pray and she looked at me and then said of course I do uh, and that was all we got there was no, uh, no conversation about it but, uh, but i would to ask you just to pray for her and pray above all that she would just know that Jesus is with her her saviour is with her and that that in itself will just be a comfort and a blessing to her right so let's have a look at this story that we had read to us this morning Uh, a dismal story, a black story uh, in many ways um, as we go through this book of 1 Samuel and see the events there uh, we see in the book uh, quite a, a lot of ups and downs but this was one of the downs. This was a black day in the history of God's people. As we've seen before, they've, they were on a bit of a roller coaster as God's people. They were constantly up and down, uh, constantly losing their way as God's people, and God sending various uh, leaders to them to uh, restore them. And it's, all is well, all is fine, and then they lose their way again, and they go their own way uh, and God has to rescue them again but now um, they've the, the, this story we've we 've just had read this morning it is there that uh, when they really got to rock bottom, the Ark of the Covenant that was so sacred to them was Uh, had been lost it was captured by their enemies by the Philistines to understand the story as a whole we need to understand what the Ark of the Covenant was Uh, it dated from the time when Moses led the people uh, out of Egypt uh, to the, the land they had been promised they'd been in Egypt for 400 years and they'd been slaves there they had no say in things, they, they were just like a slave nation. And for 400 years they have been there, but now God was taking them out. He was taking them to their own land, that land uh, that he had promised them. Uh, and during the time in Egypt, so they didn't have their own rules, their own laws, they followed Egyptians, they followed their rules, they followed their laws. And now they were on their way to their own land. They were going to make a completely new start. And they needed to sort out, uh, when was, as under Moses, exactly what they were going to be, what sort of people they were going to be. They needed, if you like, a constitution, rules to follow. When countries today become independent, they throw off the rules that they have been, had imposed upon them by others, In the last couple of years, uh, a couple of the West Indies have become independent nations. They've ceased to have the Queen as head of state, and they've developed all sorts of their their own ideas, how they're going to rule themselves, how they're going to govern, what their laws are going to be. And Israel was on the way to its promised land, its own land, and it needed to know, to establish uh, what was going to be the basis of of their, their time there and God, God God himself gave them the if you like the constitution how they were to live how they were to be, what sort of people he set the philosophy that was to underpin their rules As the basis of that he gave them the ten commandments, there was a lot more to the law that he gave them but there was the ten commandments which were the Uh, the main things they were written on stone tablets and they were the rules by which the people were to live Moses explained what sort of people they were to be God made a covenant with them that as long as they remained faithful to him he would be faithful to them God himself was to be central to all that they did they were at this time wandering out in the desert In tents, uh, God gave them instructions that a special tent with meeting was to be made. He gave detailed instructions as to how it should be made. Nothing was left for them to decide. They simply had to do as God instructed them. And we can read in Exodus and Leviticus all the things that God told them to do. And the first thing he told them to do was make a wooden chest. Uh, this Ark of the Covenant, this chest that you've got a picture of it there uh, a meter and a half long, nearly a meter wide, a meter high, and it had uh, it was uh, uh, it had a lid on top of it. The whole thing was completely covered in gold, there was to be a gold ring at each corner through which two poles could be passed. So when the priests carried it, four of them could carry it by the poles in each corner. Now into this box was placed the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments engraved on them. It was to remind them of God's law. To remind them that this was what God had said how they should behave, what they should do. There were two other things in the chest one was an urn containing some of the manna that they sustained them in their time in the desert you remember the manna fell down from heaven and they went out and gathered it each day uh, from the grass uh, not the grass, the sand around them Uh, and that that was, was God provided it every day right through the time they were in the desert it was there and to remind them of God's provision for them that God cared for them was this urn of manna in the ark. Also in the ark was Aaron's rod that had buddied. Do you remember when Aaron went to Pharaoh, or Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh in the first place to tell him to let the people go? Aaron's rod, he threw it underground and it budded, And he picked it up and it was back. Um, and, and that rod, which to the Israelites was a symbol of the power of God, his power over his enemies. That also was in the ark. And so it was a reminder. It was called the ark of the covenant because it was a reminder, a permanent reminder, of the promise or the covenant that God made with Moses and the people. That if they worshipped him by keeping his commandments, he would be their God and would care for them as symbolised by the rod, his power, and the manner, his provision. The ark was to be housed in its own room in the tabernacle, not accessible to everybody, but only accessible to the high priest. But it was there. It was not to be seen by the people, but they knew it was there as a, a reminder to them. It was set apart, it was sacred, God was with his people, but he was holy, separated from them. So, this Ark of the Covenant was to be to them a symbol, a reminder that if they would serve God by keeping his laws, he would be with them. So, then we go forward 200 years to when our reading was set. The Ark of the Covenant was housed in a tabernacle, in in the tabernacle at a place called Shiloh during those 200 years judges had come judges had gone they'd been overrun by one country and after another and then every now and then God raised up a leader who led by God was able to defeat the enemies that day now we've come to the point where there's a glimmer of light because we've been hearing in the last few weeks of the birth of Samuel uh, and Samuel's just about on the scene and he's going to lead them and he's going to restore things to them. But before that happens, there's this one incident which we need to look at. The Israelites decide that they cannot defeat the Philistines who are attacking them. They decide that unless they have extra help, they can't do it. So they decide to go into battle with the Ark of the Covenant, that Ark which is to stay in the tabernacle which was meant to be there, they're going to bring it to battle and it's going to go into battle with it. And you can see they're they're thinking, oh, if we've got this, we'll have God with us. It didn't work like that. The box, that chest, contained the covenant where God promises to help if they will be faithful to him. And they turn it into a lucky mascot and they decide, we'll go, into battle with this as our mascot. Of course, they didn't need any mascot. They didn't need a lucky charm. The box itself was a reminder of what they needed to do. Faithfully meet their side of the covenant and God would be with them. The manor and Aaron's rod that budded were two powerful reminders of the power and provision of God. They had 200 years of God intervening on their behalf, Deborah, Gideon, Japheth the, the, the great judges, Samson, they had all been sent by God in the past. they had been delivered, but that has gone now. They've forgotten that, and they decide to do things their own way. And surprise, surprise, it all goes pear-shaped. They were utterly defeated utterly defeated and the Ark of the Covenant that was so sacred to them was captured by the Philistines large numbers of them died and I was interested in the figures there we read that 4,000 of them died in the initial battles and then in this final battle 30,000 Israelites perished 30,000 died I'm looking up uh, the estimates of Ukrainian casualties in the war with Russia so far are between three, possibly 4,000. 30,000 Israelites died in this battle. They were completely beaten, completely down. The Ark of the Covenant, as I say, which they put their faith, it was captured. And all because... They just fail to trust in God himself. So the question has to be asked in our lives, what are we trusting in? We don't have Philistines to fight. We don't uh, have the battles that they had. But we need to have trust in God. We're constantly in need of his help. What do we put our trust in? There are many things that we can put our faith in. We are called to serve God alone and to trust him to bless us. The Catholics have a doctrine of the means of grace. We are called to serve, uh, sorry, that, that is the things that we can do to earn the grace of God. They are under an obligation to go to communion. And for many of them they see that as their way of gaining God's blessing it's a means of grace it's what they do to receive the grace of God and if they miss communion then they're very fearful that they will lose favour with God they're expected to attend the mass regularly when we were in church the council of churches there held a meeting uh, where the leaders of the various churches talked about what communion meant to them and the Catholic priest explained the concept of the means of grace. We needed, he said, to take communion, to ensure that we receive God's grace. During a time of questions, at the end, uh, Jean asked him, how often did, he have to, did we have to do it to know, get God's grace? When did it run out? He told her, don't be flippant. But that was a question... And it's the question we ask. The fact is, there's only one means of grace, and that's faith. It is our trust that brings God's faithfulness. All God is looking for in us is faith and faithfulness. Now, communion is important in the life of the church and in the life of individuals. The symbolism of remembering the sacrificial death of the Lord until he comes, he is very powerful. It should move us to love and worship as few other things can do. And personally, I would like to see us uh, having communion a little more than we do. We need to recognise the value of giving more than a few minutes once a month to remembering our Lord in his death. But in itself, it is just a ritual ceremony. Its strength is in the devotion and adoration it evokes in those who truly believe. We don't ascribe to the Mass as a means of grace. Grace is given to us by the grace of God, through faith. There were a lot of churches in this country that were in danger of elevating the, the, their Sunday morning service, the baking of bread service to a similar status, many churches of this sort. It became a must-have. Those of you who were members of Ackland Road 30, 20 years ago will know what I'm talking about. Many churches descended into being centred on the breaking of bread rather than on Christ. What should have been a simple remembrance of Christ became a ritual observance that had to be followed at any price. Ackland Road came through that and was able to move on but many churches didn't and they sadly have just passed and, and they no longer exist. What about us? Do you have a quiet time? Do you come have a quiet time each morning probably at a regular time of being quiet before God reading his word and committing the day to him in prayer for many, it's a very precious start to the day, so meaningful. But as with all devotional things, we need to assure, assure that we do not attach things to it that it doesn't have. It's not a way we guarantee God's presence. Christians can too easily make the quiet time a means of Grace if anything goes wrong in a day oh, I didn't have my quiet time it must be a, uh, uh, and they get all sorts of the quiet time itself becomes the thing they're trusting in, trusting in a ritual rather than just trusting Christ the quiet time can be and should be a blessing to us not just because we do it but by it We're brought closer to God and know his ways. We can easily ascribe to things qualities they do not have. So many people revere relics and icons. The Turing shroud is a prime example, a cloth that's supposed to have been the one that was used to shroud the body of Christ when he was crucified. For some, it's a holy relic to be revered and worshipped. It's idolatry. But of course we don't have such things in our church. We don't even have a cross. But we can still elevate things to a status they do not have. What's this? We call it the Holy Bible. But it's no more holy than any other book. When, I, when we were in Churchy, a bit before we were in Churchy, where we, uh, in, in Surrey, the pastor of the church where we spent our early years, where we were married, he decided he was going to have a clear-out at the church. So one afternoon, he drove his wife to the women's meeting and while the women were meeting there, he went in the back of the church and he got together All the Bibles the bibles that started with exodus and finished halfway through revelation and had various bits missing in between and he made a great pile of them he put them outside into the yard and together with a whole load of other things of hymn books that were uh, almost useless anyway he burnt them all he made a great bonfire of them all when the ladies came out of the meeting, they were horrified. It's burning the Bible! The Holy Bible, it was being desecrated. But the printed Bible has no magical properties. The Bible is the Word of God. It contains all that we need to know about God and about ourselves but it has no special properties. We're to use it. We're to teach it. We're to bring others to faith by telling them what it says. And we thank God for his word, fervently. It is his word. But we don't revere the book. We don't revere this as a book. It is what God says. Historically, in this country, we uh, have a a, a system that does that with the Bible. The legal system has an emphasis on the Bible oath. We have countless swearing-in ceremonies for various public offices. If we give evidence in court... We have to swear using the Bible to convince others of the truth of what we're saying. Jesus had a view on using things that were holy to back up our words. He said in Matthew again, You've heard it was said to people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven for its God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair, white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Everything beyond this comes from the evil one. Fortunately, I've never had to testify in court. But I would have considerable doubts about having to swear on the Bible. It's not a magic book. Many people have and still do use it to swear what they're saying when it's all a load of lies. When we lived in Chertsey, the town had its annual fair, a black cherry fair. It was called out because Henry VIII had given the town a charter that at the Black Cherry Harvest they could have this this fair. And it was a large fair attended by large crowds. And at the fair one year, the council churches decided that they were going to have a stall. They were going to go and have a witness. So a stage was set up, uh, a programme of all sorts of events to go on this stage was was arranged tracks were purchased and we would all witness we would witness to all who came now the fair started with a procession a procession through the town a large number of floats would move from one end of the town to the other and as that procession went through the town the crowds that lined the route as it passed them so they would call in behind it and down the road, behind this, these floats, this procession, there were some 2,000 or more people there. So by the time it arrived at the field where the fair was going to be held, the floats went into the one side, and the people all followed on onto the um, field. This great crowd of people started flooding on. We had a prime sight right at the entrance to the church, to the field. But as they started to enter the field, as people started pouring onto it, one of the church leaders suddenly had a horror thought. We haven't opened in prayer. We haven't opened in prayer. Horror. Oh, how's God going to bless us if we don't do that? And so they all got together. You got them all together and... And a little huddle of people in the middle of the field, and all the crowds went past, and they prayed, and they prayed fervently, that God would bless their witness, and then they got up to get on with the witness, and all the people had moved out onto the rest of the field. Now, there's nothing wrong in praying in fact. We would have been wrong if we hadn't prayed. And some of us had been praying for for weeks for that event. We'd surrounded the, the thing in prayer, but had this, there was this misguided belief that we had to start proceedings with prayer. And we missed out on a great opportunity. God could bless, he didn't need a special ritual for us to do it God's promised to be with us he's promised to help us he's promised to bless us he has promised those things and all he asks of us is that we believe what he promises our faith is simply in him and in his promises the world has its great religions Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity. And all of them have their rules. What do you have to do to gain God's blessing? You have to do this and do that according to what religion it is. But we're not part of that. We are part of the Christian faith, not the Christian religion. Churches have all kinds of rules which people have which people have to subscribe to if they want to join that church we ask what do we ask? that people have faith in Christ not they do this or do that but they have faith in Christ we are part of the Christian faith not the Christian religion and that's an important distinction People join religions for all sorts of reasons. Jean's brother changed his religion, although I'm not sure he was ever a Christian, but he changed his religion to a Muslim, because he wanted to marry Muslim women and live in Indonesia with her. So he became a Muslim. I'm not very impressed when I hear of the millions of people across the world who are Christians. They belong to the Christian religion. But large numbers of them do not belong to Christ. We hold the Christian faith. Our faith is in Christ himself. And that's the basis of our salvation. For in the Gospel, says Paul to the Romans, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. By faith from first to last. Faith not in this or that, but faith in Christ. Christ himself, what he says. Those Old Testament people we've been thinking of had ample evidence that God would bless them. He'd done it time and time again. Time and time again, he had saved them from this nation and that. And they didn't have to find ways of persuading him that they needed help, they needed what they wanted him to do. And we, we don't need other things to prompt God to bless us. We have his word, his promise, as we walk with God day by day we see him at work in our lives. I gave my life to Christ nearly 70 years ago and I can look back over the years and see time and time again when I simply came to him in prayer and he answered. I didn't need anything else. And after all, where's the logic in trusting anything else when God has all his promises for us? What is the point? Do we not believe God? The promises of God are not, I might look after you, or I might help you. Do we believe the experience of Paul and countless others who have declared that God supplies all my needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus? That's Philippians. Do we really believe? Do we really believe Christ when he says we can cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us? Did he make any conditions when he said, he's always with me, he will never leave me, he will never forsake me? He said all these, we just need to believe them. We may not know how we can get through this trouble or that trouble, but we are certainly not going to get through it our way. God will, will take us through. God will answer prayer. He'll do it in his way. But we can put our faith in his promises. A few weeks ago, we looked at the story of Naaman. Remember, he is the Syrian general who had uh, leprosy. And he came to Elisha, and Elisha said to him, just go and bathe in the Jordan, you'll be healed. And he was furious. It was all too simple. His friends pointed out that if Elisha had told him to do something great, he would have done it. And Elisha, as Naaman thought, he decided to, to just believe, to trust. And he went down to the water and he was healed God just wants our good he wants us to take him at his word to trust him, nothing else what, what do we trust in? Do we trust in Christ is our faith in him Not to, I don't know many of the modern songs we have but uh, as i thought of uh, this, the verses that came to my mind and kept coming through my mind was John Greenleaf Whittier's hymn of 1872. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. And when you look at how many people need to say that, how many people just, they just don't, they don't trust, they can't trust. Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, forgive our foolish ways, reclothe us in our rightful mind. In pure lives I service find, and then in simple trust, like theirs who heard beside the Syrian Sea the gracious calling of the Lord, let us, like them, without a word, rise up and follow thee. In simple trust. God doesn't ask for all sorts of wonderful things on our behalf. He asks for our faith, our trust. And when we trust in him, then we know his blessing upon us.